Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Nicholas Glynos, Vice President of the Student Association for Psychedelic Studies and co-founder of the Psychedelic Neuroscience and Therapy for the University of Michigan. His work is focused on DMT, which if you don't know is a substance that takes you to another dimension. By the way, no, I don't endorse drugs. It's currently illegal and I would never take it. I don't take drugs. I haven't for ages. In this part, we talk about the neurological picture of the brain when DMT has been administered. Thoughts, mental time travel and planning the many ways to measure the brain under psychedelics, the challenge of remaining present when stimulated by states of fear and distractions. Essentially, I try to get into the idea that spirituality is... We have to find new ways of relating to our own consciousness and inner life if we're going to change the world. And I, so, and I'm trying to see how he, as a person who's studied DMT, feels he that that DMT is a substance that might facilitate changing the world. So it's a pretty good chat. Stay to the end. Let me know what you think of it. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's 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 exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Is it true that, that when you observe the brain of someone who's had DMT administered, there is not more neurological activity, but less? Depending on which areas you look in. So a lot of the research has shown uh, these regions called the, the default mode network, which has been uh, attributed to thoughts of uh, like mind wandering, mental time travel, planning, preparation, things like that. That brain network seems to be subdued and activity seems to be reduced. There's a dozen, there's more than a dozen, there's several ways to measure the brain, to image the brain under under psychedelics. Um, and some of the things we're doing is looking at EEG activity. So that's more um, uh, kind of global cortical activity. And we see a lot of different, different patterns emerging there. Um, you know, other ways are to look at like neuroplasticity, um, you know, neurochemistry, what, are, what kind of neurotransmitters, what kind of molecules are, are responsible or are released after DMT. Uh, but certainly the, the default mode network seems to be one of, the, one of the common features of not only DMT, but a number of other serotonergic psychedelic substances. You know, I was just thinking of the, my own subjective experience that my, my continually narrativizing, projecting, remembering the difficulty of remaining absolutely present in the moment. Just yesterday, I was on, in a coastal hotel in a place called Blackpool in England. And uh, is, and, do you know there's um, an air of uh, subdued sanctity there as if like a place of kitsch and vulgarity has been built on top of something beautiful and natural, but becomes most evident and obvious when you look at the sea, which is separated from uh, the human settlement by three rather aggressive roads and, and sort of promenades. But when you get actually to the beach and to the water, and if you stare at the water with the light on it, as I did yesterday, there was a moment, just a moment, where my narrativizing mind temporarily ceased and there's a sense of awe and wonder and something a little like the g-force of being on a roller coaster which i also did while in blackpool and and i and i feel like that there is uh, uh, like you said that the one component of the reported dmt experience is this familiarity i sense that the sacred the rapture enlightenment awakening these are not they're esoteric in the sense of they're seldom achieved and that they are high that they are empyrean but they are 
ordinary and accessible to all people. And I think somehow we are stimulated away from those states by uh, social structures that continually agitate fear and desire, distractions, you know, and... So the idea that that part of the mind that you said is likely responsible for sort of, I don't know, planning and daydreaming and just wandering, that that is temporarily annulled and that the consequence of that is this kind of dormant wonder roars to the full forefront. That, um, that, that, that sort of excites me. That excites me. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, a lot of research, you know, uh, Dr. Carhart Harris, I know who you've had on the, on the podcast yes. before too. He's, he's done, uh, a lot of work in that field and it's, it's been speculated and I'm, I'm not sure if this is really verified. It, it's certainly not verified, but the idea that the default mode network that what I was just talking about is, is somewhat related to the, the occurrence of the ego. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and just as you said, if you can sort of shut down that ego and people talk about psychedelics as ego dissolving substances, and if you can sort of shut down that constant monkey brain, you know, that, that mind wandering, that, that mental time travel, if you can shut that down, then, you know, seeing what emerges there is uh, potentially something that that's always there. We're just, we're just not noticing it because, you know, we have this sort of uh, a reducing valve in our, in our brain. That's, you know, only letting in a certain flow of information um, when, when in reality there's, there's uh, other other things, other forms of consciousness to experience. I feel that that's true. So you talked about um, ayahuasca and you sort of, you mentioned it's some sort of a, I can't remember what exactly what you said, but you said it's like a miracle or it don't make sense or something. Can you just go back to that, mate? Yeah, it's uh, one of the, one of the greatest mysteries of ethnobotany is I think what I said, and that's uh, attributed to uh, Richard Evan Schultes, who was the, the father of ethnobotany and uh, Wade Davis, who was one of his, uh, trainees and students also uh, did some work with ayahuasca and, and came to that, that conclusion. And it's, it's very interesting because, uh, so the thing about DMT is it's not orally active. So if you have a plant that contains DMT and you eat the plant, then you're not going to trip on DMT. If you, if you consume a capsule of, you know, purified DMT, you're not going to trip on DMT. Uh, you know, like I said, it's very rapidly metabolized. So the enzymes in our body, as DMT passes through first pass metabolism, the liver, everything else uh, deactivates that DMT. So it's, it's not going to allow you to have a, a psychedelic experience. But what you can do is you can combine the DMT with an inhibitor of the enzymes that normally break it down. And that's called a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So if you take DMT with one of those inhibitors, then DMT becomes orally active. So you can consume it and actually have the psychedelic experience. So it's sort of this, uh, you're sort of hacking the endogenous chemistry of our body to allow DMT to become orally active. And ayahuasca is exactly that. So it's a combination of, of, of usually two plants, oftentimes a, a couple of other plants that are, that are added and there's, there's various recipes, but there's the two main two plants are the one, one that contains the DMT and then the other plant that contains the uh, enzyme inhibitor. So uh, when you combine those two plants and make a brew or make a tea and you consume it, then you have ayahuasca and you have this very prolonged uh, DMT experience. Uh, and it's, it's, lo- it's active for longer in the body than DMT alone would be because you're taking it with that inhibitor to allow the DMT to uh, avoid the metabolism. And that's very interesting because uh, in South America, 
all across South America, not just one indigenous group figured out this, this random combination, but hundreds of them across multiple countries, all across the Amazon basin. And this is in one of the most richly diverse botanical regions of the world. There's 80,000 species of vascular plants. There's 80,000 different plants you could combine to make this happen. And they found the two that actually make it work. And oftentimes if you take one or one or two of them alone, then uh, there's, there, are, there are no effects. There's, there's sickness, there's nausea, but combining them both um, to make this brew allows for this intensely powerful and what became a culturally and historically very, very significant and important brew for a number of different indigenous groups all across uh, Northwestern South America. So it's, 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 you know, and it's a great mystery. So how do the indigenous people with no, obviously no, you know, modern chemistry or empirical testing tools figure this out? And, you know, I've traveled a bit to Central America and talked to, talked to a few people about this. And really one of the most common answers that comes is you ask them, how did the people figure this out? And they say they, they speak to the plants. So they have some sort of uh, uh, communication network or some sort of uh, a way of, of learning from the plants that is unknown to us and doesn't exist in our perceptual capabilities. So it, it's very interesting. And um, I'm not sure if we'll ever have an answer, but you know, we don't need an answer. It's, it's, it's just very interesting. If you're enjoying this conversation, join me over at Luminary on Apple Podcasts for the rest of our discussion and for all the latest episodes of Under the Skin.